Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Oh my goodness, what a sweet time of worshiping Jesus together. Amen? I want to say happy graduation to the, uh, some of you who have graduated over the last sort of weekend and excited for all that God has in store. Yeah. You know, um, growing up, I absolutely loved baseball. And for one of my birthdays, my parents got me a t-shirt that said, baseball is life on it. The rest is just details. And I can remember when my mom sort of wrote my birthday card, she wrote in it, pay attention to the details. Pay attention to the details. The details are important. But as a 14-year-old, I didn't want to hear that. I was bent on making it to the major leagues. And um, spoiler alert, that didn't happen, in case you were wondering, okay? Uh, but baseball really was my life. It was the thing that gave my life meaning and purpose all throughout high school. I mean, luckily we mature out of this phase of making something our life. Or do we? Or do we? They just don't make t-shirts like this for adults, right? I mean, think of how strange it would be to walk around with a t-shirt that says, work is life. The rest is just details. Or success is life. The rest is just details. Or pleasure is life. The rest is just details. Or, or think of how strange it would be, yet maybe fitting, to see somebody walk up to their kid's baseball game to say, my kid's baseball is life. I mean, it might be for some people. Uh, We've um, seen a a number of physical altercations between parents at our kids' baseball games over the last few months. And yeah, so maybe, just maybe, uh, our kids' sports are our life. But my guess is you could fill in this blank with something. Something is life. The rest is just details. Do you know that the scriptures have a name for that? We actually just sung about it. And anybody know what the name of that something being life is in the scriptures? Idolatry. Idolatry. That's what it's called. And I I love the way that Tim Keller, the great author and pastor, put it when he said this. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. My guess is that when you looked at that sort of, that fill in the blank, it may have been difficult to think of the things that you put in front of God. Because so many of them just feel normal to us. They just feel like, well, this is the air that we breathe. This is the way that things go in our day and our time. I'm reminded of the 2015 commencement speech given by the author David Foster Wallace. He started that speech by saying this. There were two young fish swimming along and they happened to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nodded at them and said, morning boys, how's the water? And as the two young fish swam on for a bit, they eventually looked at each other and one of them said to the other, what's water? So used to it that he couldn't even name it. And I think for us in the day and time that we live, and this is really true throughout every generation, 
The, the challenge for us as followers of Jesus is that so much of the time, our idols don't feel like idols. They just feel normal. Our sin doesn't feel like sin. It just feels like, well, this is the way that life is. And I wonder if it would be easier for us if we just named some of our um, misdirected desires as gods like they did in the ancient world. You do know that that's what they did, right? So there was a god for money. That god's name was Mammon. He's doing all right in 2021, isn't he? There was a, a goddess of sex. Her name was Aphrodite. She, she's doing okay in 2021, isn't she? There was a god of power and of victory and of war. His name was Mars. He's not hurting in 2021, I'll tell you that. See, but I think they were just more overt at naming their this is life than we are. They just got it out on the table and said, these are things that we worship. But, but there's so many things that we baptize as quote-unquote normal. We sing on Sunday, but then we go about and we get in the stream and just get in line with the cultural flow. In so many ways, I think that's normal for us. But do you know what's not so new and not so normal? is to allow Jesus to shine on us in such a way that he exposes some of those things that we're building our lives around that just simply aren't worthy of our lives, that aren't worthy of our devotion. Do we allow him to shine on us and to move us forward? See, I'm convinced that our idols must fall if we are truly going to follow. And we're going to see the way that that played out in the ancient city of Ephesus as we open together to Acts chapter 19. If you have your Bible, will you turn there with me? Acts chapter 19. If you're new to the scriptures, one, we're glad that you're here. Acts is about three quarters of the way through the Bible. In the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and you'll find it there. As we pick up the story, Paul is on his third missionary journey. On his second missionary journey, he traveled through the city, the great ancient city of Ephesus, and he said, if the Lord wills, I would love to come back to Ephesus. Well, the Lord did will, and he did return, and he spent, uh, uh, most people think, uh, upwards of three years teaching and ministering in Ephesus. He spent two years alone teaching in the hall of Tyrannus, and he saw God do a great work there. Look at verse 10 with me as we pick up the story. It said, this continued his teaching there for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That is a powerful ministry in the first century without Twitter and the internet and a way to get word out to masses of people quickly. People all around the region heard about Jesus because of Paul's ministry. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or Aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. In the biblical vernacular, we call this deliverance. It's when the kingdom of light pushes back the kingdom of darkness that followers of Jesus who carry his power step into God's world and they push back the things that God hates. Now, believers back then had this power, and believers today still do. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over the evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims. So here's what, what's going on. 
these Jew- traveling Jewish exorcists see what Paul's doing and goes, that's cool. I want to try me some of that. Verse 14, seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And at this point, if you're one of those men, you're going, "Uh uh-oh, that's not good. Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, if you're into boxing or MMA or UFC, there are times when two people will fight and they'll have to go to the cards to figure out who won. And sometimes there's debate over whether or not they got it right. Let me propose to you that if somebody walks into a fight fully clothed, and they walk out of the fight without pants, there's no debate about who won. You lose if you walk in clothed and walk out unclothed, and they walked out beat up and without their clothing, okay? And notice who these seven men were. They were sons of whom? The Jewish high priest. In so many ways, these are Men who should have known the way of God. They, would have, they should have known about how to step into a situation with the power of God. They should have known that deliverance isn't about technique. It's about relationship that flows through connection to Jesus. There's no deliverance or power outside of relationship to Jesus. See, if we want to do the work of Jesus, we have got to walk with Jesus. And these seven sons of Sceva, in so many ways, represent a wayward spiritual practice that's obsessed with controlling the divine. Friends, if you want Jesus' power in your life, you have to be willing to bow at Jesus' throne. And that's what this story is starting to teach us. And listen to the way... It continues. And this became known. Now, just quick, quick. What, what became known? Uh, that there were seven guys who walked into a fight with pants and walked out without them. Okay? That, that's what no, became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And say it with me, church. Fear fell upon them all. Fear. I started to think about that word. Why, why fear? I think they started to realize in Ephesus that there's this sense of of beyondness. That God is great and God is magnificent and God is powerful. And when you start to realize that God is magnificent and God is powerful, you also in turn start to realize that you are not. And that's the reason it's so hard to come to terms sometimes with who God is. Because we have to admit that he is great and we are small. That he has power and we are dependent. And you and I, when that happens to us, we have a choice to make. We can either try to sort of power up and do our thing, or we can bow at his throne. I think so many of us live out the title of this documentary that came out in 2004. It was about a man named Morgan Spurlock who for 30 days ate only McDonald's. Do you remember the title of that film? Supersize Me. Okay? 
And in so many ways, that's, I think, what we try to do when we recognize we're small. We try to supersize ourselves. We try to double down on power and control, or we pacify the pain of being small. But here's the realization, friends, and will you just look up at me for just a moment? I don't want you to miss this. Um, It is an illusion that you are big. The reality is we are all small, and it will hit us one day. It may be when we're on our deathbed and life is slipping through our fingertips. It may be when a relationship goes awry. It may be when the business doesn't work out. But there will come a day where we will be tempted to try to interact with the reality of life and to supersize ourselves. And I just want to push back in this moment today and encourage you. That's what's normal. What's not normal is the way that the Ephesians responded. And here's what they did. It says, after fear fell upon them all, the name of the Lord Jesus was, say it with me, church, extolled. If you have a New American Standard version of the scriptures with you, that word is, does anybody have it with them? Magnified. I think it's the right word. In the Greek, it's the word megaluno. It literally means to enlarge or to make bigger or to shine a light on. In so many ways, to extol or to magnify is to say, this thing is life. The rest, it's just details. It's just details. And notice, this is their response to fear. This is their response to acknowledging their smallness. We're going to lift up the name of Jesus because when Christ is magnified, fear is minimized and life is maximized. When Christ is magnified, when he's lifted up and put in his rightful place, the this is life, Jesus is life, fear is minimized because my fear doesn't stand a chance when I what? Stand in his, were you guys here for that? Okay, remember that? (laughs) Doesn't stand a chance when I stand in his love. And life is maximize. I mean, listen to the way that the psalmist David said the exact same thing in Psalm 34 verses 3 through 5. He said, oh, magnify. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my what? Fears. So when I magnified, he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are what? Radiant. Like their lives are maximized. And their faces will never be ashamed. See, I I would argue that every single human heart holds a telescope. Your heart has a telescope on it. And the question is not whether or not you have a telescope and not whether or not you're magnifying something. The question is, which direction is the telescope facing? See, because when it faces one way, things that are far away seem a lot bigger, but when it's faced the other way, when you flip it around, things that are far away seem even smaller. I'd argue that every single one of us has a telescope on our heart that's faced towards Jesus, and the question is, what direction is the telescope in your heart facing? Now, There's baggage that we carry because of the water that we swim in culturally that makes it so easy for us to invert that. 
Now, that was true for those who were in Ephesus also. I mean, let me just tell you a little bit about what's going on in Ephesus because I think it'll help us as we try to navigate our own cultural moment. See, if you were to walk through the streets of Ephesus in 52 AD like Paul did in the account that we're reading, you would have seen that Ephesus was an extremely wealthy city. It was a port city, and so there were constantly people going in and out. It was known as the greatest harbor in all of Asia. It had 300,000 people living in it, which for an ancient city was massive. There's one Roman writer who called Ephesus the light of Asia. But the crowning jewel of everything that was going on in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis was 425 feet long by 220 feet wide. It had 120 columns that were each 60 feet tall, and it was said that each one of them was a gift from a surrounding king. So people from all around the region are going, we want in on this. Now Ephesus was worship, or sorry, Artemis was worshipped at this temple. She was said to be the god of hunting and the god of wilderness, but she was also said to have been the god of virginity and the goddess of childbirth, which I'd submit to you that's a bit of a conflict of interest. <laughs> but she indeed was both. And the way that people worshipped the goddess Artemis was they would go to the temple and there were hundreds of temple prostitutes and people would go and quote-unquote worship her at the temple. So what do the Ephesians who magnified Jesus have to do in order to lift Jesus high? They have to minimize Artemis. They have to take the focus off of their lowercase g gods and put them on the capital g god. They, they have to do the exact same thing we have to do, friends. And so I think it's helpful as we look at their journey to start to ask, what was the pathway that they took? And, and God, how might you might be challenging us to look at our own hearts in light of the Ephesians journey and do some business with you today? Well, listen to the way that the story continues because there's a roadmap there for us. Verse 18. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced, practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them, all in, burned them in the sight of all. See, Ephesus was known for its magic spells and for its incantations as a way to control the spiritual world around them. It says, and they counted the value of them all and found that it came out to 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver was roughly a day's wage, so 50,000 days worth of wages. This is a big book burning that's going on. And there's actually a word that we have for what the Ephesians did. Here's the word, repentance. Repentance. That word means to change our mind in a way that leads to a change in behavior. Did you know that one of Jesus' favorite words was repent? Now listen to the way that he said it in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Say it with me, church. Repent and believe in 
the gospel. Now, I think, I think, we view the word repentance as somebody holding a sign, maybe at a football game or a baseball game, says repent, and the person holding it is always really upset. <laughs> repent, you better repent. And I think to hear Jesus say repent, to look into his eyes, would have been uh, just an invitation to joy. <laughs> repent. Repent. You can change your mind in a way that leads to a change in action that's possible for you today. See, repentance is an opportunity to change your mind and to reorient your life around truth rather than a lie. And my guess is that for every single person in this space today and those watching online, there's an invitation in front of us to repent, to let go of something that we may be building our lives around that isn't worthy of our trust. But hear me on this. It's hard to repent while you feel like you still have power. Which is why when fear came on them, that's when they repented. I love the way that the author Dallas Willard put it. He said, God's mailing address is at the end of your rope. It's true. It's true. Yeah, repentance isn't a popular word today. We would rather view that truth is relative. I mean, you, get, you have your truth and I'll have my truth and let's just all sort of link arms and uh, sing kumbaya together. Friends, let me point out something obvious. Artemis and Jesus cannot both be Lord. Jesus isn't sharing his throne with anyone. They can't both be Lord. Repentance is aligning our soul with the reality that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. But I think that at times can be a little bit nebulous. So what I'd like to do is for the next few minutes, just dive in and look at their journey to say, what did repentance look like for the Ephesians? Here's what it looked like. It says, and many of those who were now believers came, and what did they do? They confessed. They confessed. It's actually the very first step in repentance is confessing your sin to God. You might write down in your notes, not only this, but there is no repentance without confession. And in the Greek, that word confess means that you fully agree to a debt that has been incurred. Okay, so, so catch this. This is what it means to confess. It's to say back to God, God, you were right, and God, I was wrong. God, there's a debt that I incurred because of my wrong, and there is a penalty that is due me because of my wrong. And the scriptures really clearly define that penalty. They say the wages of sin is what? Death. Right. And so, God, I deserve to be separated eternally from you because I've rejected you. And in order to confess, we need to bring all of that before the throne of God. But I love the way that the pastor and author Rob Reimer put it. He said, there's no freedom without honesty and there's no breakthrough without brokenness. It's actually this act of confession that opens us up to begin to receive from God again. I always tell people that confession is two things. Number one, it's a platform to be honest, to say back to God, this is where I've been. This is what I've done. This is who I've been. And it's a pathway to come home. Because every time we confess, we are reminded that God is eternally like the prodigal father who runs to meet us on the road and welcome us home. It's a platform to be honest, and it's a pathway to come home. 
So I wonder how Jesus might be inviting you today to confess, to say this is where I've been, and to come home. But the second thing that happens is they're, they're confessing, and then it says that they're divulging their practices, meaning the confession between God and them, but then there's also this act that transcends just the you and God relationship, but starts to overflow into the lives of the people around you, that they bring into the open their darkness, and they let the light shine on it, and it's the second thing that repentance demands, that we disclose our wrong to trusted people. I don't know that it's enough to tell God that you're sorry. We have to bring it into the light if we really want our sin to lose its power over us. It's the reason that James writes to the believers and he says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be what? Healed. Healed. There's healing that's waiting if you're willing to bring your darkness into the light. As I was preparing for this message, I, I found that there's actually secular websites out there where people can go and they can confess their secrets. They can confess their deepest and darkest sins. Then they can read about other people's confession. Because that phrase, me too, is a powerful phrase. Can I just tell you, friends, I am begging Jesus for a day when people don't have to go to an anonymous website to disclose, but where they can come to the church. They can come to a place like this and say, this is where I've been. This is what I've done. I believe that because of Jesus and what he's done on the cross, his grace is sufficient for me. And I'm praying for a day, you guys, where when they come to church and when they disclose that they are welcomed with open arms and pointed to Jesus who loves them and has forgiven them and has saved them, not where they're judged and condemned, but where people walk alongside of them to bring about the healing that Jesus longs to pour into their soul. And maybe that's today for you. Maybe today you just need to come after our service. Our elders, our prayer team will be up front to pray with somebody and to say, this is where I've been and this is what I've done. And I'm bringing it into, into the light because I believe that Jesus wants to heal me. Here's the final thing repentance looked like for the Ephesians. It says in... A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. This is like burning the ships. They are not going back. They are saying we are severing and we are cutting ties with our sinful ways. I can remember when my brother went to youth group one night. He must have heard a talk about the evils of secular music. And he came home, and this will date me a little bit, but he melted all of his tapes. <laughs> Has anybody had an experience like that where you just went, oh, Jesus is moving and boom. And, and, but what's he doing? He's going, I'm not going back to that. That's not who I am anymore. Let's just talk straight, friends. Some of you have a number in your cell phone you need to delete. Some of you have a subscription or an app on your phone or a website that you need to block. Some of you have an appointment that you need to say no to so that work is life isn't on the t-shirt that you're wearing. And to cut ties and to not go back. 
You know, the Ephesian repentance might look a little bit more familiar than maybe we at first thought it did. See, because for the Ephesians, their worship of Artemis was also tied up in their sexual ethic. And so when the Jesus followers say, we are not worshiping Artemis anymore, it changed the way they exercised their sexual expressions. They had a number of temple prostitutes that they went and visited. But we have the internet. 1.3 million pornography websites right now. It's a $97 billion industry. And in a heartbreaking study that Barna Group did back in 2014, so it's a little bit dated now, here's what they found. They found that 64% of men and 15% of women who are followers of Jesus also are engaged in pornography. So let me go to what I said before. I long for the church to be a place, not where you're judged, but where you're freed. Not where you have to hide, but where you can bring into the light your struggles and find people to walk with you in hope and healing. And so to that end, you can find information in your bulletin about an anonymous group struggling with sexual issues and pornography. We would love as a church to come alongside you and help you find the healing that we believe Jesus has purchased for you on the cross. But what a beautiful picture of what it means to magnify Jesus. And then look at what happens after that. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What happens in light of their repentance? So they confess and they divulge and they cut ties. What happens? Well, the word of the Lord starts to explode. People are going, these Christians are serious. They're not just going to church on Sunday. They're living this out on a daily basis. This has changed their entire life. What happens? Renewal internally happens. And I would say that widespread renewal personally always leads to, or not always, sometimes leads to public revival. That's what we see in Ephesus. We see revival. I'm one who prays often for revival. I read about it. I study it. I'm like, God, what's the, what's the equation to see you do something great for your name? Because I want to see that in North County. Who's with me? Here's the equation. Here's the equation. Every, I haven't found anywhere that it didn't work like this. It begins with Jesus followers on their knees saying, God, we are broken and we need you. God, here's where we've been and here's what we've done. And we want to get right before you. We will not bow down to idols. We'll hold fast to what is true. Christ be magnified. If you find a revival that began outside of the church on its face in repentance, let me know. I would love to read about it. But everyone that I've read about begins that way. So if that's what we're praying for and if that's what we long to see internally and externally, we've got to be people who say back to God, you've got our whole hearts. It's, it's you. It's you and only you that are our life. The rest is just details. Now, as you may have guessed, the story doesn't go just uh, up and to the right from there, okay? Um, rarely does it happen that way in life and therefore in the scriptures. Listen to the way the story continues. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, because that's how Jesus' followers were referred to, the way. 
For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Um, most people think that he was the master of the silversmith guild in Ephesus at the time. Verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying the gods made with human hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be counted as nothing and she may be disposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. So notice, here's what they're saying. Hey church, we're cool with you worshiping Jesus. That's okay. As long as it doesn't affect our pocketbooks. Then we've got some issues to contend with. But the reality is that what we magnify always shapes how we spend our money. See, you mess with people's religion and they'll get upset. But you mess with people's money and they'll riot. That's what happened. They rioted. And so what do the Jesus followers have to do? After they've confessed and after they've experienced God's renewal in their life, what do they have to do? They have to stand with resilience. At the onslaught that's coming their way. And friends, there may be a riot outside when we start to magnify Jesus. Uh, that, that may or may not happen. But what I know happens every time we start to lift Jesus high in our life, there's a riot on the inside. Where we start to have to figure out what does life look like now that Jesus is truly Lord, And when the cultural tide pushes back and when the pain starts to come and when the questions come, the question we have to, as Jesus followers, wrestle with and answer is, what will we do in that moment? Will we stand with resilience? I think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Death threats, jailings, beatings, phone calls in the middle of the night he do? He just keeps moving forward. He just keeps moving forward. I think that's a picture of what Jesus followers are called to do right now in this moment, to keep moving forward, to say, you've got our hearts and you've got our lives. But it's helpful to see what they had to be resilient against in Ephesus, because I think in so many ways, our challenge is very similar. Verse 30, or sorry, verse 28. Here's what they had to be resilient against. And when they Heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, that, by the way, seated about 25,000 people, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. <laughs> They're like, Bro, this isn't your time to go. Let us engage. And so just because they repented and just because God brought renewal didn't mean that the fight was over. They had to be resilient against what? Uh, against the numbers, against the crowds. See, if we're going to be resilient, we have to oppose the pressure of the numbers. And that's still true today, friends. 
Whether it's in our view of sexuality, whether it's in our view of what we do with our money, whether you fill in the blank. If Christ is to be magnified in our lives, we will be in the minority often. That's just a reality. But here's the second thing they did. And the second thing we must resist. Verse 31. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him, urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, another for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. I mean, isn't that a great picture? They're just going crazy. Woo! Right on! What are we here for again? I don't know, just yell louder. And they did, that's exactly what they did. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Two hours! They're going, yeah! I mean, do you feel the emotional pull? To say, I guess it's not that big of a deal. I get there's a whole theater of people pushing back on us for burning those books and for saying that little stone image isn't a real God. Let's just, let's just acquiesce. No, here's what they do. They resist the pull of emotions. And I know you've felt it over the last year. The pull of emotions has been strong, has it not? I mean, discussions about racism, about masks or not masks, about politics. I mean, I've been reminded that emotions can be overwhelming at times. But as Jesus followers, we are called to be resilient and to resist not only the pull of emotions, but the pressure of numbers to remember that Jesus is Lord and to declare it with everything in us, with everything in us. Eventually the crowd's dismissed, the clerk quiets them and they point them to due process. But I love this example of what it looks like when Christ is magnified. So let me invite you to just pause. Maybe start putting your things away as we go towards the communion table together. But will you just ask the Spirit of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you, will you just ask him, is there anything I'm putting in the place of this is life and the rest is just details. Anything other than you. Does anything have your heart that isn't worthy of having your heart, your attention, your focus? I just ask the Lord. You know, as a family, um, over the last few months, Kelly and I have been introducing our kids to movies that we watched growing up because they just don't make them like they used to. Can I get an amen? And one of the movies we showed them was the movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And I was thinking about that in light of magnifying the Lord. And I just had this prayer throughout this week, like, Lord, has, has the church shrunk Jesus? Have we not asked people to really give their whole life and to let the rest be details? Instead of shrinking Jesus, my prayer today is that your life would look like 
Jesus being magnified. This is the Christ the Redeemer statue that is, stands over Rio de Janeiro. And I just want to invite you to have this picture in your mind today, to have Jesus over your life, to have nothing beside him, to see him as beautiful, to repent and confess your sin, to experience renewal, and then to say, this is the view that I want to have, Jesus, you exalted and you lifted high. Let's be a church and a people who magnify the magnificent, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And friends, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or powers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And you are one of those all things that's held together in him. So make him the Lord of your life. Magnify the Lord. Minimize fear and maximize life. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.